Hello, everybody. Ryan here. Um, just to give you a quick uh, intro on the episode today, this was recorded quite some time ago um, with uh, well before this uh, coronavirus thing got completely out of control. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we mentioned it a little bit, but, but you know, we're not really uh, tackling it straight on. But we thought that, uh, you know, folks would appreciate something that wasn't uh, directly related to the endless parade of horrible news about the uh, pandemic. And so, yeah, you know, you want to take a load off, just give this a listen, talking with philosopher uh, A.C. Grayling about democracy. And as always, if you want to support the show, obviously this is a, you know, a difficult time for, for media folks and, um, you know, independent uh, podcasts generally. You can go to patreon.com slash left anchor. But uh, if not, no worries. Uh, stay safe out there. And here we go. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Pleased to welcome to the podcast um, Professor A.C. Grayling, who is the uh, professor of philosophy and master of the New College of the Humanities at London. Um, and, and he's here to talk about his, um, I'm not sure if it's published yet or... or Soon to be published, I think. Upcoming book called The Good State on the Principles of Democracy. So uh, welcome to the show. That's a real pleasure. Joining us from across the pond, by the way, which, uh, you know, the last philosopher from across the pond was Brad Evans, and we had a smashing good time. So I'm sure we will with you as well. Good. Well, I hope so. That's a high bar. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I thought, you know, m maybe to ki uh, kick us off here and get into sort of your conception of, of uh, you know, what's gone wrong uh, with with democracies the world over, you know, you you say that uh, both in the UK and the United States, we we don't really have a functioning sort of democratic societies. Um, so, could you sort of go into what you mean by that? Well, you know, the debate about uh, how to construct a democracy has been going on really. I suppose you can say since the middle late part of the seventeenth century. Uh, so there has been a journey which speeded up as a result of um, all the innovations in the United States when it formed itself at the end of the 18th century, all during the 19th century and since. And since the Second World War, actually, the great majority of countries in the world have liked to um, claim that they're democracies and have built a number of institutions which uh, approach democracy. But the truth of the matter is that we're, we're not really there yet. It's a, a journey the destination of which is still somewhere away. So let me give you an example. Both in your country and in mine, the electoral system that we have for the representative house, so the House of Representatives in the US and the House of Commons here in the UK, is elected on what's called a plurality system, first past the post. And this is a very undemocratic system because it's so unrepresentative. But very easy to demonstrate why. Suppose you have a congressional district with 100 voters and 10 people stand for election, eight of whom get 10 votes, one of whom gets nine, and the last of whom gets 11 votes. Well, that's the person who goes off to Congress, leaving 89 of the voters out of the 100 with no representation whatever. And this is repeated in, in many major countries in the world, Canada, India, for example, not just in the US and, and, uh, and the UK. So right from the very start, we're not really democracies. 
And if you look at the, the institutions that we have both in your country and in mine, the Senate and the House of Lords, well, the Senate is a state's house. Its, it's uh, membership doesn't at all reflect the population distribution in the U.S. Our House of Lords is an appointed house. There's no electoral aspect to it at all. And it's stuffed out with a lot of retired politicians. And <laughs> then w w when you consider also, I mean, a really serious uh, problem that we have in our UK version. And, and by the way, the seriousness of this is considerable because there are about 50 countries in the world which have what's called the Westminster model. That is the kind of parliamentary system that we have in the UK. And, and there are so many countries, including some pretty significant ones like Australia, New Zealand, India, South Africa, and so on. In fact, actually, the United States is a, is a version of the model too. But you, you've developed something there which is a step in the right direction, which is uh, separating the powers of the executive, that's the office of president, from the legislature, that's Congress. We haven't done that here. And in all those other 50 Westminster model uh, uh, states, the government is drawn from the majority in the legislature, which means that the executive controls the legislature. There's no separation of powers there. And that's a really serious thing. In your country, you have a, a big, big problem, I, I think, and I say this with great respect as an enormous <laughs> admirer of the, of the US. I don't wish really to be interfering in some other countries' uh, um, uh, pains and problems. But uh, the, the problem that outsiders see is that the appointment of Supreme Court and Appeal Court justices is not separated from the political process. These are political appointees. And the, the consequence of that is very serious because it means that if, uh, let us say, a Republican uh, president and, and judiciary committee in the Senate um, ensures that these seats are filled with uh, Republicans or conversely, if a Democratic president, Democratic Senate, then you're going to get for a generation ahead, for decades ahead, people whose uh, opinions, attitudes, uh, responses will skew their public conversation in one direction rather than another. Yes. And it really ought, of course, to be independent. No, no, this is very good. What I really appreciated about your book was was both how you're pointing out the problems with uh, different forms of democracy structurally in terms of how the institutions are designed, uh, but also in terms of so so form and matter, if you will. So also in terms of the the ways in which the citizenry is alienated, perhaps by those structures, uh, but also the way that the politicians perhaps are not serving the common good in the way they carry out those duties. So so there's an interesting way in which you're picking apart different problems uh, of design and then different problems of how those people who are responsible to their polities, whether it be the citizens, the journalists, or the politicians, are are not fulfilling the purpose um, of the design itself. So. Uh, you know, I think I think it's a it's a great start to get us um, into both what could change design wise for for us, for you, and for those around the world, but also uh, what the relationship is uh, between the problems of design and the problems of uh, those not doing their duty. Yeah, now I mean I think a really key thing here is actually the electoral system because you've put your finger on an important point in what you just said, which is that uh, if the electoral system is not genuinely representative. It's very alienating. People feel they don't really make a difference when they cast a vote. And, and certainly it's the case that a losing vote, since it's completely unrepresented, is worth nothing. And so, you know, people think, well, I can't make a difference. But if you had a properly proportional system, then you could make a difference. 
And one of the really good things that would result from it is that you might get more uh, political opinions represented in the legislature, in Congress. And you might even get uh, something which is even better still, which is a, a hung Congress. That is where there's no overall majority for any one party. Now, most political rhetoric uh, kind of revolves around the thought that that is a dreadful situation to have. But actually it isn't, because it means that every measure which comes before Congress in a situation like that has to stand or fall on its own merits, not because there's a majority which automatically will wade through the agenda of one faction rather than another. You know, I know you you two guys were probably reading the Federalist Papers in bed last night, so you'll remember <laughs> Federalist Paper number 10 by Madison saying that one of the worst things that can happen in democracy is factionalism. But just look at the situation in the States and here in the UK. You have a two-party system because of the electoral system. It creates a two-party system. And the two parties become very polarized and hostile to one another. And they compete with one another to get their hands on the levers of government so that they can get their factions agenda through. Now, this is, this is something which too often works against the interests of everybody. And I mean, a point we really need to make here is that, uh, you know, we go back to what Lincoln said in Gettysburg, talked about government by the people, for the people. But if we dig into that concept, for the people means for everyone. It means that democracy has got to be inclusive and participatory. It's not, you know, a, a system which is designed to deliver into one side of the of the political argument all the power in the state which is what happens here. I mean, a most astonishing thing has happened here in the UK um, just in the last couple of months, which is that in the last general election back in December 2019, uh, the um, now governing party uh, won a massive majority in the House of Commons. It has an 80-seat majority over all the other parties combined. And it succeeded in getting that on, wait for it, 29% of the total <laughs> electorate. I mean, that is so distorting, so alienating of the of the ordinary voters to deliver 100 percent of the power on a on a, a minority of the vote. That's a great problem. And, and is it any wonder that that's permitted when when voters feel alienated as if they can't really influence things and, and they witness uh, politicians serving the good of the party, as you say, party discipline is a problem. Uh, and in the States, you, you correctly point out that we are essentially a plutocracy. Um is it any wonder then that it's it's disempowering to the people um, and therefore reinforcing the ability of uh, the, the, that tiny majority or tiny plurality to um, to effectuate those interests instead of serving the common good? Um, I, I found your, your book very interesting because you, you draw on the founders right of, the, of this country, um, James Madison and and the Federalist Papers, but also you mentioned Rousseau and you might think of um, you know the will of all versus the general will, um, and you bring in Aristotle and, and Rawls, and it seems like really whatever system we have, if we're not thinking of all of the people, all of their voices and interests being incorporated in a in a fair way, um, we, we've missed the mark and we're not a democracy at all. It seems. Yeah, that, that's exactly right, you know, because uh, people talk about uh, democracy as the will of the majority and so on. But in fact, the, the very concept of, of a majority is a, is a false concept, because any society, any state is just a coalition of minorities. 
you know, it's just a, it's just a great congeries of individuals and minorities. And whenever there's a, a majority for something, it will be a temporary coalition of minorities with respect to a, to a particular issue. So at election time, on, on the day that people go to vote for you know, Democrats or Republicans or, or whatever, that they are offered a manifesto. So it's a take it or leave it, the whole thing, or you know you can't just pick and choose which bits of it you like and comment on them. So you, you've got to take the thing as, as a whole. And then people on that day will form a, a temporary coalition in favor of one party or, or the other. But actually, majoritarianism is not of the essence of democracy because not not even a very big majority can overrule the rights of individuals and of minorities. Minority rights and individual rights are far too important and they lie at the very heart of the idea that a, a democracy is about the demos, about the people, about everybody, that, that it should be inclusive and should protect the opportunities and rights of all individuals. So, you know, the way we normally think about democracy is pretty skewed anyway. But the trouble is that if you alienate people, you alienate voters, you're going to get a situation like the one, you know, in the US, for example, for presidential elections, you might get perhaps a little bit over 50% turnout, but that's incredibly low. And and in, in you know, midterm elections, it's even lower. And that means that political parties know how to play the game. They know that not everybody's going to vote. They know how they can target, they can micro-target messaging, especially now with social media and so on. And they can kind of manipulate their way into power. And once they've got it, of course, there's very little that the electorate can do. Yeah, that's that's certainly a a problem for us. Um, You know, here, here in the U.S., we have famously the worst kind of welfare state in the industrialized world by far that we're, we're, uh, we're getting ground in our face now with this, um, you know, outbreak of coronavirus or COVID-19 or whatever it's supposed to be called. Um, and, uh, you know, you suggest in the book that, you know, a sort of basic social provision is, is almost a constitutive element of democracy. Do, do you think that, um, you know, if if we had a more uh, sort of thoroughgoing uh, democratic structure in this country by your lights, that 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 would just sort of emerge uh, uh, over time. Well, yes, because if people thought uh, carefully ab- about what's implied in the idea of democracy, especially this idea of for the people, so that this is a way of setting up government and uh, running government in the interests of the of the nation, of the country as a whole, and of the people in the country. That immediately implies certain things about equal concern for citizens. You know, we say when we think about a really good voting system that nobody's voice should be any louder than anybody else's voice. Well, by the same token, no nobody in society should be um, disadvantaged so that some other group or some other individual can be advantaged. You know, it it isn't. I mean, I take the view that there should be no cap. There should be no argument which says you can't get as rich as you as your talents and uh, endeavors can make you, providing, of course, you don't do it illegally or by treading on other people's heads and stuff. So there should be no cap on that. But then on the other hand, in a civilized, humane society, it just shouldn't be the case that there are people who live in terrible poverty, who who sleep on the street or who uh, starve. You know, that, that kind of thing is just not acceptable in a, in a civilized outlook. So if you think about what the purposes of government are in a democracy, at very, very least, 
those purposes have to include treating all the citizens with equal concern, not making them equal, not you know expecting them all to have the same amount of money and the same possessions and so on, but to, to treat them with justice. And one thing that we've learned uh, and you know seen all too vividly happening in recent years is that when inequality and injustice become prevalent in a society, it's very destabilizing. All around the world at the moment, we've seen the rise of populism in India under Modi, in Hungary under Orban, uh, populist movements in uh, places like France and, and the Netherlands, populism now in government in the UK, a populist uh, you know, uh, upsurge which has brought uh, your Mr. Trump into power. And, and these things are symptoms of the fact that uh, inequality and social injustice is growing too great in our societies. And that's not what democracy is meant to be about if democracy is for the people. Indeed, I, I would, you know, I, I see the, the Rawlsian approach there. And, and of course, um, I, I wonder if you'd agree with, with Rawls and, and the veil of ignorance and the original position and the difference principle, which, which would say that uh, in terms of inequality, um, we'd want to enter into society not knowing who we would be if the inequality generated by that political economy was helpful for everyone. So if it lifted everyone up, uh, and, and indeed, if you, if you, you know, study, you know, the, the recent work by Piketty, you don't need to go back to Marx, but, um, it seems at least in this country, but perhaps everywhere that, um, the, the inequality and the, and the, the rich getting richer does not indeed lift up everyone else. And so even by Rawls's own, uh, method, I would think, uh, the, the, the inequality domestically and globally is, is not just. And, um, and perhaps I'm, I want to, to question why then things such as the, the wealth cap would you write out of uh, possibility if, if it seems that, um, that very Rawlsian measure is not being met? Okay, so I think there are, there are two points there. One, I think, is that, uh, that the way the system is structured, I'm thinking about our kind of socioeconomic system and um, the super influence that, that wealth has in the political process, because, of course, it can, you know, uh, by um, uh, supporting politicians, uh, by giving money to super PACs and, and what have you, can have a distorting um, effect on policy. And that if policy, especially taxation policy, so skews things that you get a, a massive degree of uh, inequality emerging, because it is the degree of inequality which is the dangerous thing in society. S some degree of inequality by, the, by itself is probably accepted by a lot of people. I mean, I imagine there will be plenty of people in the U.S., uh, let's say, who don't mind if great baseball stars and basketball stars, NFL stars, earn a lot of money because they're very good at what they do, or pop stars, for example, or you know, actors. So, so people don't begrudge that particularly. But, but what people do begrudge is the idea that the system is loaded in favor of people who can sequester larger and larger and larger proportions of the, of the overall uh, community wealth at the expense of other people. That there is no there is no sense of, of so sharing things, so redistributing in, in a way which is reasonable, so that there are resources to help people who are struggling. Yeah. You know, there, there, there will be a free rider problem, because if you have a good welfare system, yes, you're going to get some free riders. But, you know, if you try to stop the free riders by having a lousy welfare system, you do a huge sure. amount of harm. But Professor Grayling, I, I would say that the NFL players are not the problem. It's the owners of the NFL teams that are the problem. And I, wouldn't you say that billionaires are a policy failure? 
<laughs> well, uh, I mean, it, it depends. That's a great philosophical answer, isn't it? <laughs> it, it depends in, 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 on, on the system that, that produced them. Uh, that, like I say, uh, if you get billionaires because the, the, the whole system is skewed in favor of some people being able to get their hands on more and more of what's around uh, at the expense of other people, then obviously that's a very bad thing. And I would think that in most developed economies, the existence of billionaires is a symptom of a problem. Indeed. But in, in, in principle, uh, you know, intrinsically, there's no, there's no objection to anybody becoming rich, providing it isn't at other people's expense, providing it's genuinely the case that everybody could have that opportunity, and that those people who can't, those people who don't have the, who've not historically had the chances, the opportunity, the education, the, I don't know, whatever it might be, the energy, whatever it might be, but that those people should not um, fall below a certain civilized minimum that a humane society can provide. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose like, uh, uh, many people, and I think I would, I would believe this argument as well is to, to say that if you, if you've accumulated a billion dollars, like that must, uh, at the end of the day, be coming at the expense of like broader society. You know, I think of, uh, you know, our best president in American history, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Um, and Ryan and I disagree here. I think Lincoln and FDR is a close second, but we'll, one, we'll put that to the side. <laughs> one, two, two, one, whatever you want to say. But, uh, I like them both. Yeah, back, <laughs> why back, not both? Back during uh, World War II, I believe he he pursued with an almost maniacal fixation a maximum income of twenty five thousand dollars, which is about a million bucks in today's uh, uh, dollars, and and he didn't quite get there, but he got up to ninety four percent marginal tax rate, and the one of the effects of that was that you know nobody. Nobody made more than you, you basically it would be silly to try to push for a salary increase over that amount. And as a result, you know, in corporations and so on, like the 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 social surplus got pushed out more into the margins of society. You know, corporations had much bigger R&D budgets. They paid their workers better. And, you know, therefore, you know, it, it, this this concentration process that happens when you have, you know, sort of free market system without that kind of control on it. Uh, made for a much more, you know, the sort of egalitarian distribution of income that that you're talking about. So, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't seem to me all that objectionable to just say that, like, on some crazy multiple of average wealth, you know, say like a, a thousand times the 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 average, you know, sort of uh, wealth in the country. You just say like, sorry, that's as much as you can possibly own. Well, and, and also because the fact that theoretically you could say uh, if billionaires didn't necessarily expropriate wealth in order to get that rich. Uh, and if we could have campaign finance laws so that M Michael Bloomberg couldn't spend $500 million in 10 weeks in order to try to buy the Democratic primary, um, the point is there's a relationship between the fact that he has that wealth and power and the fact that he was allowed to do that and the fact that he was allowed to be on the debate stage um, and circumventing the rules that everyone else had to, to appeal to. So it, it does seem like there is some connection to practically what um what politics results in uh and and the theory behind what might be permissible uh, in a vacuum sure no i'm i'm very sympathetic to the views that you're putting i, I mean i you know it, it's quite a, um uh it's it's quite a, a an interesting idea that the, the idea of of uh, achieving some really significant and worthwhile 
form of redistribution in society by, by, by putting a kind of um, you know, statutory cap on what anybody can own or, or earn. And on the other hand, trying to do it through a, uh, a tax system which is predicated on the idea that as a, a member of society, as a citizen, you have certain kinds of obligations to your fellow citizens too. Uh, you know, you have, um, it's, like, it's like any kind of uh, community where there are certain things uh, which are very well shared if, uh, you know, that that community is going to flourish. Mm. So, for example, things like um, a commitment to really very good education service, a very good healthcare uh, system, to a, um, a security system which provides people with, uh, you know, protection from exploitation. So I'm not just talking about crime here, but I'm talking about economic crime. You know, that, yeah. that, that kind of uh, society which has a, a real sense of what would make it flourish. So society which had a certain kinds of ideals and which expected everybody to step up and be part of paying for those ideals. That would be one way of ensuring a kind of redistribution predicated, as I say, on the idea of, uh, of citizenship. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, because, you know, the billionaire thing is, is about, individu- is about a right. form of that's individualism, right. which is uh, completely out of control. No, right? and I, I think you're absolutely right. Because, look, uh, we identify as democratic socialists, and, and I think that uh, the socialism that perhaps you would agree with is, is one that is rooted in the kind of classical Republican notion of citizenship and the, the duties to serve the public good that are freed up when, so as Aristotle might say, when mere life is taken care of. You, you know, this is something the, the right-wingers forget when they, when they kind of tout Aristotle, is that in the polis, that the mere life was not a question. <laughs> everyone had yeah. already all of those things that we do not have here as, as, uh, as something that everyone is provided in this country. Uh, so the good life, human flourishing that requires citizenship, uh, civic education, and uh, pursuit of um, justice is, is active and requires that kind of way of being that is, is predicated on something that we're not already providing here. So, so there's a reason, I think, um, that the structures that disenfranchise, that lead to uh, plutocracy and party discipline, uh, are at once the ones that also make uh, voters apathetic and uneducated. Uh, those things go together, it seems to me. Oh, I agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we've seen a demonization of um, positions uh, on the left. We were, one thing that that uh, I attempt to do in this book, actually, is to, in, in a very, um, how should I put this, uh, sort of slightly nuanced kind of way, really, is, is to try to get people to see that if you're serious about democracy, then you have to be serious about those aspects of, of social policy that, uh, you know, maybe some people on the right would uh, regard as a kind of Trojan horse for uh, a kind mm. of progressivism mm. that they don't like. But, but, but I, I, want, I want to try to illustrate to people that this actually follows. It follows from the logic of the concept of the democracy itself so that, you know, you can be you could step back from from partisanship or, or political factionalism and party labels and you could just see, well, if you're serious about this, then you've got to recognize that uh, massive inequality in society predicated on injustice, uh, on denying people opportunities and not caring about people who, who don't cope in the society, not really thinking that um, welfare, education, health, those sorts of things are fundamental not not just for the majority, uh, you know, but but for everybody. Not not, not just you know that that section of the society that you don't feel you're part of because somehow you're richer or better or different or something. But it's it's everybody who benefits from it. Yeah, 
Um, yeah, that's a that's a great point. Um, I, I want to return to the the idea of of separation of powers. Uh, is it is it your view that that you should elect you know your sort of proportional parliament and then elect separately the uh, executive branch, um, pre- president or prime minister or whatever? Yes, uh, the ideal structure, in, in my view, is to have the um, executive uh, established separately from the legislature, and uh, both the um, legislature and the executive being elected on a on a basis which really respects and reflects the great diversity of interests and preferences in the society. So a really, you know, a, a good, sensitive, proportional representation system. That that would be in the ideal. One one reason why um, I, I keep talking in, in the book about a kind of plan B, a sort of second best, which is uh, to have proportional representation so that you would promote the idea of coalition government. For most of those uh, Westminster model polities, unlike the US, which have the kind of, of uh, parliamentary system that we have in the UK and Australia and elsewhere. Because, you know, if you if you go for too much reform all at once, you're not going to get any reform. So my, my argument is first step would be to try to get electoral reform, encourage people to see that the immediate result of that is the greater likelihood of coalition governments. The coalition governments are a good thing for the reason I said earlier, namely that that means that measures really do have to to, uh, get through on their merits and there will be input into them from representatives of all the different interests in society. So that would be a a good first step. And there is a practical side to this here in the UK because already um, people have got very much more alert, I think, and, and, and very fed up with the fact that our electoral system is so dysfunctional. And consequently, they're immediately thinking about reforming everything, you know, mm. reforming the House of Lords and getting rid of the monarchy and doing everything all at once. <laughs> and the minute that you start, the minute you start chucking in the, the refrigerator and the cooker and everything, you know, you just get nothing done because it all gets too clogged up. So I'm, I'm trying to, to be fairly um, step by step in the book by saying the key thing is to begin right there at the very heart of this is uh, how we choose our representatives not just the voting system because as you pointed out earlier on too we have to be much much more careful about the kind of people that we put into power i mean you know it's it's a, a tremendous um, comment really on the founding fathers of the us that they put the electoral college into place in, in order to ensure that that very very high and important office would be populated by suitable people and alas because of partisanship mm. and you know political contrast uh, it has been a spectacular failure especially especially recently and to, to be fair to the founders james madison anticipated uh, in federalist 51 that he says that these these checks and balances these designs are simply auxiliary precautions and that ultimately um the government the character of the government will depend on the people and, and implicitly, exactly. right? So we, we have this problem. And when, when you had Astra Taylor on here on the podcast, we talked about Rousseau's paradox. How does an undemocratic people, right, form a, a democratic polity? And so we have this, this issue where um, <laughs> the reason they're trying to, to, to toss everything out and change everything is, is there's this affective, I think, state that people are in that led to Brexit and to Trump. Condolences on, on your tragedy. And uh, I assume you feel the same way for, for us. Uh, but, but there's this, this, this rise of populism on the left and the right, uh, I would say the faux populism on the right, uh, is in part because of a 
uh, anger and frustration and affective state that that perhaps won't respond or it doesn't like the idea of a, a tepid proceduralist uh, answer to what feels like a very grave existential state of affairs. And so how would one uh, navigate that uh, where, where there's the fear of, of radicalism that might end up bringing you a Trump or a Bolsonaro, and yet there's the fear that um, any temperate approach doesn't understand the gravity of the situation? Sure. Now, actually, what, what, what you're saying there really takes us into something which is uh, maybe the, the, the kind of underlying problem here that democracy has uh, tried to solve especially the democracies which have emerged in this last couple of centuries. We go back to Plato, you look at what he has to say in Book 8 of the Republic about the fact that if you put power to the hands of the people and the people are insufficiently well informed and they're too self-interested and too short-termist and so on, what you're going to get is anarchy. So he's got a very condescending view about uh, just how good the people would be at making those sorts of decisions. To be fair, and they just thought, killed they, they killed his buddy and mentor Socrates. So to be <laughs> fair, he had a good had a good reason for thinking so. Well, I don't know. You know, we, we've we've only heard his side of the story. It's always the uh, people who come out the top. <laughs> so, so he he was very snooty about the people. Okay, and um, I, I think that great endeavour from Locke onwards, all the way through people like Montesquieu, Man, Madison, Hamilton, all those those folks, right up to John Stuart Mill in the nineteenth century, all trying to to work out how you can get from um, the, the right that people have to have a say. So, you know, the, the, the right to a voice on the one hand to another right that we all have, which is to good enough government, what Aristotle calls sufficient government. And um, Plato seems to have assumed that you couldn't get from the one to the other. You couldn't get from, from you know, a popular source of authority in the state to a, a well-running state. And that's why he said it's got to be aristocracy where for the ancient Greeks anyway, aristocracy didn't mean lords and ladies, it meant the best people around. But what, what, what these, um, the, these modern political theorists uh, landed on was the idea of representative democracy. So in, in a big polity, a big numerous country like the United States, even indeed like the UK, 65 million people or 82 million people in Germany and so on, they're too big for the kind of Rousseau sort of democracy which really requires small communities where people uh, know one another a lot better and where it's easier to discuss things in a more direct way. But representative democracy is a way of getting from giving everybody a voice to getting to um, a kind of government, providing the government is properly constrained by uh, the voices of the people. You know, Tom Paine back in the 18th century said, a constitution is something that the people have, the people say. This is how things have got to work. These are the rules you've got to uh, run this thing by. And uh, you're accountable to us in the end. And if you can make a, a constitution which is not you know, completely ossified, with great respect to your constitution, there may be one or two provisions there, like the Second Amendment, which seem to <laughs> exemplify uh, atherosclerosis. And we in the UK don't have one at all, which is incredibly convenient for politicians because they can just make things up as they go along. And, and, the, and the, the problem there is that if you're going to have some form of representative rather than say direct or sortition democracy, you really do need some clarity and certainly some consistency in the way that the institutions of government are run. So that, that I think, is, uh, you know, get, gets to this, the sort of point that you're making there about how, how 
given you know that, that that we've all got other things to do as well we can't all of us every single day unless you're running a podcast like you guys be thinking about about politics you know we want to deal with our families and our careers and get some shopping done at the mall and you know all that so we want our institutions and the people that we appoint to those institutions to do a responsible and honorable job and we need to be able to check in on them and we need to be able to throw them out if they don't do a good job. And that, I think, is the key to the idea of representative democracy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that sounds pretty good. Um, um, but, you know, you, you say you say in the book that, that you know, one of your sort of uh, long term objectives here is to uh, drain the politics out of government. And, um, you know, with this sort of like gradualist, you know, like like piece by piece reform going through on like different shifting coalitions. But when I think about, you know, what what sort of tattered fragments of like social democratic stuff we have here in the U.S., you know, it generally came through in like gigantic glugs all at once. Um, You know, you had in the you know, from 19 uh, in 1933 and then 1935, you know, uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt again. He he passed the first the first New Deal and the second New Deal, as they say. You know that was uh, you know a, a total overhaul of American society and and taking care of about five thousand uh, different things all at the same time. You know, Social Security, uh, taxing the rich, building the Tennessee Valley Authority, all of these other things um, that still you know to this day kind kind of like the 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 reason the United States is still functioning even a little bit is uh is from all this infrastructure that got put through then similarly you know in the in the 65 session you know LBJ got these enormous majorities and used that to pass uh, Medicare and Medicaid and um you know uh maybe setting aside the 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 questions of of like um, you know, w- whether or not that might have happened differently under a different system, it, it was it seems like pretty inarguable to me that that what got the, that through was a huge amount of political struggle and contestation and huge, you know, mobilized majorities of people who were demanding often very angrily, uh, you know, a, a total overhaul of the system and and the and, uh, you know, um politicians in those days were were in many ways just kind of responding to this in kind of in terrified fashion to you know the the threat of uh you know at the end of the day as FDR feared and and maybe rightly so like a communist revolution or something like that and so you know do, do you think that uh there's you know maybe people need to be more that 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 uh, democratic system requires some level of engagement and 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 you know people sort of you know harassing their their congressmen through through mail and the telephone and whatnot to 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 make them stop taking bribes and and uh, to to do the people's work so to speak. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think on that very last point about citizen engagement, yes, I, I do think it's necessary that we should from time to time, you know, j- just as from time to time we do our laundry, so from time to time we should get angry <laughs> about our politicians and we should step up and do stuff. You know, my, my, my point there was about the fact that we can't be doing it 24-7. That, that's sure. the, the reason why we want good functioning government so that we can get on with some other stuff as well. But just to go, go back to your point about uh, FDR, 
you know, one of the reasons why he was able to do what he did, and he did some, you know, really, really wonderful things, was because he lived at a time of emergency. I mean, there'd been the great, uh, you know, Wall Street collapse, and then there'd been the Dust Bowl, there'd been, uh, the, you know, the, the society had got to a point, well, the economy perhaps had got to the point where uh, um, it, it wasn't delivering, and, and uh, there'd been that collapse, and there'd been huge amount of immiseration and huge queues of people, the soup kitchens and things, and the system had to be taken by the scruff of its neck and dealt with. And it's possible to do revolutionary things in situations of collapse or in situations of war. So, you know, when you've got to get the economy on a war footing and you've got to engage tremendous energies uh, in, in the interests of defeating Nazism and defeating Japanese aggression, you can do this kind of thing and you'll get people behind it. You can also get people behind it when you're in a situation of, of uh, tremendous uh, sort of um, uh, unrest over civil rights issues. This happened in the 60s. I mean, LBJ had a, he had a bit of a following window because young people got really mobilized and the injustice on the civil rights front uh, had become intolerable. So you, you get those kinds of situations. And I'm pretty sure that no matter what system you had in place, at moments of, of major change and upheaval in a society and an economy, that kind of thing can happen. But what you don't want is you, you don't want a system which permits that, but which by the same token permits people on the other side of the political argument, the people on the right, to do what they want to do. You know, the Trump agenda or the, the GOP agenda would be completely diametrically opposed to that. And if you put the same degree of power in their hands, uh, to, to get their agenda through, then you get a result which is very undesirable. This is why I think, uh, you know, this, this is why I say draining politics out of government. And, and of course, it seems a rather astonishing thing to, to say, mainly, I think, because of what we're used to. But I think political discussion, discussion about what direction the country should go in, what kind of public policy we should put in place, how we should have a, a just system of redistribution, how our institutions should work in the interests of everybody in the country and not just, you know, privileging people who want to amass more and more wealth and so on. And if we've got something in place like, like that, then uh, the, the discussion in the public debate, in the press and on television, on the hustings, uh, up to the election. But if you have a system where all those different interests, all those different preferences get themselves represented in the outcome, so you have a, you know, you can just imagine a, a House of Representatives which has maybe four or five political parties spread across the political spectrum, and no one of them is, is going to be dominant. So they really do have to engage with the issues on an issue-by-issue issue basis. The outcome of that is much, much more likely to be responsive to a, a, a good state of government that is a good you know, service to, to the population as a whole than if you've got one group which has got its hands on all the levers and can pull them for its own agenda. Indeed. I, I just I keep coming back to this, um, this question, question of theory and, and praxis because um, I think we both agree, Ryan and I, about many of, of the reforms you suggest. Uh, I think compulsory voting, uh, civic education, um, the auditing of um, the representatives. There's a, there's a lot of good things in here. Uh, and again, we, we talked about how so much of this is, is predicated on the kind of, of welfare state, the kind of mere life um, that, that allows for precarity to be taken care of and for citizens to, um, to kind of be attuned to what the representatives are doing and so forth. Uh, but just in terms, at least, 
of, of this country here, but then generally, so much of what is um, good about this description of perhaps government without politics is something that seems to me predicated on a lot of contestation uh, in order to get there. And the fact that, for example, um, you know, the, the, the liberals, the neoliberals in this country um, really paved the way for Trump uh, in not meeting the needs of the people. And, and that so many um, procedural reforms would not fundamentally address the fact that capitalism is in, in so many ways that the source of all the suffering and pain that's not being addressed politically. Um, I mean, you, you look at the, the Bernie Sanders movement right now, and it's, it's portrayed as radical when so much of what they're agitating for is, I mean, maybe we could get single payer healthcare, forget the NHS, maybe. And that's kind of a utopian demand. Apparently uh, you, you have, you have the kind of movement from the ground up where people are claiming to be socialists. And instead of doing the laundry, they're going to kind of reading groups every weekend to learn and educate themselves. They're, they're going to um, the most boring meetings you could possibly, lots of meetings <laughs> in order to democratically run, you know, the democratic socialists of, of this country and, and have kind of little Rousseauian experiments at least, but that then provide uh, pathways for people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, other um, leaders who want to be representatives who don't take donations from anyone but individual donors who want to change the, the campaign finance laws. And, and, and they have only been successful because of a tremendous amount of bottom-up populist uh, agitation and contestation. And it just seems to me from, from the perspective across the pond here that we need to be as radical as possible within the place that we're at to even get to the kind of mere life social democratic basis um, that that is the very predicate for the kind of uh, transcending politics, um, neutral government administration that, that you, I think, um, point out would be so good. Okay, so we, we need to distinguish then the, the question of uh, how we get from where we are now to there and how things should be when we're there. Okay, sure. so now... So now we do need those people to be getting together in their reading groups and discussing and agitating and working and putting, you know, some funding together and, and, and trying to get some good people into uh, into Congress and into the White House. I absolutely agree. I mean, I think this is a, a, a matter of urgency now in, in all our what we like hope the, uh, to, to think of as advanced democracies because they are not working and they're, they're not working in all sorts of ways especially in the Westminster model uh, set. And part of the reason, of course, is the fact that social media can be used in, in, in ways that weaponize all their old political tricks of propaganda and mm. false information and so forth. Right. So, you know, a lot, of, a lot of all that stuff has to be, and I agree with you, okay? So that's because we are where we are, and we, and we want to try to get reforms. Now, once we've got those reforms, once we've got a situation which is much more just and equitable, where we have a much, much uh, uh, fairer system of redistribution in society, where we've taken care of some of those things that really matter to the fundamentals, like, for example, health, education, welfare and stuff. When we're there, then I don't know that we really want to leave it up to, you know, the sort of party zealots, because you have to remember that Political activists tend to be a, a rather small and highly self-selected group who become obsessed with, uh, you know, minutiae of, of, of policy and stuff. They're very, very needed now. But uh, uh, if ever we got to a situation where we had effective um, government uh, and it was accountable 
and the the, the, the citizens uh, checked in on them and and made very sensible and wise choices about who they were going to send to do this work on on their behalf. And then, then I think what we want to do is to I don't know see the the political discussion as being uh, one which is as much uh, about making sure that we get that kind of equality of concern and mm, that kind mm. of effective government uh, keeping on running, you know, maintain it uh, on the one hand. And on the other hand, being very alert to the need for reform because we're never going to get to a destination and it's just going to be stasis, obviously. Sure. So there's always going to have to be thinking about change and dealing with new developments and stuff. But but done, done from a position where you've got an opportunity to reflect a little bit. And it's not just all noise and struggle, but it can be done in a calm and rational way. I mean, that would be very desirable. But we're not there, and uh, so right. you're dead right. It's really important that people should get together and they should see it as a as a fight really worth having. Right. right. I, I just think, I'm thinking of the, the very apt point you make about Hillary Clinton being the rational choice against Donald Trump. And and we voted for Hillary Clinton despite um, being critics of, of her career and her, her neoliberal uh, technocratic approach to things. But clearly, that was that was the rational choice. That's the thing that needed to happen. Um, but the, part of the problem, I think, that produced Trump is uh, so many people that are protesting Trump now. There was a famous uh, image with a, a sign somebody was protesting that said, if Hillary Clinton had won, I'd be at brunch right now. <laughs> and, yeah. and and the problem is that under Obama, um, the deporter in chief, basically, it was Trump and his approach to immigration without the cruelty. There's like an extra little amount of cruelty with Trump. But uh, Obama not only was the deporter in chief, he also was the, the, the drone striker in chief. He signed off on all kinds of imperialism, all kinds of um, war crimes, killing American citizens, killing all kinds of people. But because it was with a genteel face, someone who can extemporaneously, you know, quote Rumi, uh, th- there was this, this notion that we can sit back as the citizens and let the, you know, the adults in the room, if you will, to quote, uh, kind of Vero Fakas's, uh, book, uh, let them run things because, I, and I, th- I thought Obama was this, this not just uh, man of great integrity, but, uh, eloquent, uh, erudite. And, and there is a danger, I think, um, especially with the, the kind of the Clinton perspective that we know better where the technocrats, we can run things that, um, the citizenry can fall into kind of ceding power to those who are just serving the interests of the plutocracy, who will do things that are imperialistic and defend it in ways that sound rational. Um, so how do, how do we guard against that danger? Because it seems to me that is part of why we got Trump. Okay, so I mean, you make some very, very, you know, interesting points there. So one thing that drops out of the remarks that you just made now is that I think it's a big risk to think that we kind of need a Trump every now and then just to wake us all up and provide us with an opportunity to be a bit more revolutionary, you know, that if Hillary Clinton had got in, then that just perpetuates the the kind of slow decline in the value. No, of no, we're not accelerationists. We we, we, yeah. we think that's but that's why we should have agitated against Hillary Clinton had she won as well. I, yeah. I guess I guess that's yeah, my sure. point. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So and so that takes us to the point about Obama. You know, nice guy, but then um, he's a politician also, and he's somebody who, in in a system of government which is highly uh, politicized. Uh, you know, and, and the, the kind of constant um, uh, sparring that goes on between 
the political factions in the society, what you get is you get politicians who, who, who I, I think to confuse them with being technocrats, I mean, they, they, they kind of behave as if what they're just doing is, you know, ma- making the system run mm. without being partisan about it and without actually nudging it in one direction rather than another. But you see, the thing is that, that if we had a, a system of, of government where the people who are in are appointed to office, either by election or, or by nomination, um, if they're under the scrutiny that we should be subjecting them to and are under the accountability that uh, del- our delegation to them of this responsibility should hold them to, then we make very, very exigent demands on them to uh, act always not again, in the interests of whatever faction happened to get them into that position, but really in the interests of of our society. And then it would be a matter for the society itself to come to some conclusions about what kinds of values it wants as a society to pursue. Is it a society that goes to war to impose its uh, view of the world on on other people? Is it one which tolerates um, sowing landscapes with landmines or or using drone strikes against civilian targets? You know, that's a conversation that a society has to have with itself, because if it leaves that conversation up to the politicians as much as leaving politics up to the politicians or or rather government up to the politicians, then we're going to get this kind of very uncomfortable outcome that we can never be satisfied with anybody from anywhere on the spectrum if they continue to behave in ways that have been normalized. And these things aren't normal. It's not normal to to, to be firing missiles at civilians and so on. You know, we, we should try to reconfigure the way we see these things so that we can make a different demand about what we want from government. And that means what we want from politicians. Yeah. Um that's a that's a good point. Um I let's see. I've just got one more question. I want to return to the to the to the separation of powers angle uh before I forget. Um a uh, political scientist named Juan Linz uh wrote a paper one time it's called like the perils of presidentialism and he pointed out that uh, of all the countries that have implemented a U.S. style separated uh, uh, legislature and executive, um, every single one of them, except for the United States, eventually collapsed into a dictatorship or a revolution. And the reason he had for that was that you had, you know, two different parts of government that could separately claim democratic legitimacy over the other, and there was no way. To resolve that, aside from, you know, kind of aridly technical constitutional arrangements that were not really persuasive to most of the people. And so there is always a temptation um, to, you know, uh, bring in the military to kind of cut the Gordian knot, so to speak. Um, Do you anticipate, you know, do you do you it seems to me like if you had your sort of mixed member districts or proportional representation like they have in many countries, and then that was just a regular, you know, prime minister coming out of these sort of coalition governments as they exist in, you know, most of the uh, Nordic countries, um, then, you know, that's that seems like a decent check on the executive to just be able to have if if government, if there's a crisis or a government loses enough support, they have to call you know, snap elections, and then you, you know, sort of sort it out that way. Um, how do you avoid this problem of, you know, potentially the president or, or whoever, you know, and the led and the parliament, like butting heads over who's the legitimate representative? 
Yes, I mean, if, if um, the legislature on the one side and the executive on the other side regard themselves as being uh, you know, equal in, in power, equal in, in um, democratic legitimacy, uh, then you are going to get that, that difficulty. And I'm pretty sure that that's part of the reason why we've seen the failure of it uh, often enough. But if, it, if the constitutional arrangement is that the legislature is and has the final say, I mean, it is the more powerful member, and in the end, it's which runs. And this is what a legislature should be, after all, because it's uh, one which has in it, uh, especially if you have a decent electoral system, will have in it a, a much, much uh, closer representation of what people in the country are thinking and wanting. Um, then, you know, you, you don't get that clash. So a, a direct head-on disagreement between executive and legislature, the legislature overrules the executive. Maybe the executive then has to resign or, or um, buckle under. But uh, it's only if you have a sort of myth of equality there that you're going to get that difficulty. So this is why I think constitutionality matters tremendously. Now, it's obvious that... Uh, you can have the best constitution in the world on paper, like this North Korea and the Soviet, you know, Russia and all that, and it mean absolutely nothing at all because it's not respected. So obviously it has to be respected. It also has to be flexible enough and, you know, with a good and mature, a rational, careful means of refreshing itself all the time. Because if you get uh, provisions that become like holy writ, I mean, I think, uh, people outside the U.S. look with astonishment at the U.S. situation on the Second Amendment, you know, w you know, which was passed. This is the right to bear arms thing. It was passed at a time when the arms in question were muzzle-loading muskets. You know, you yep. to try and massacre, you know, <laughs> too many people with a, with a single bit of shot that you have to stuff down the barrel of a gun. It's not going to be so easy. So it, it really ought to be possible to uh, ha have a constitution which is very clear, sets very... Uh, exigent limits on the exercise of, of office in a state, but which is also one that can be responsive to changing circumstances. Because the the other thing that any kind of mature polity is going to have to face is the fact that things don't stay the same. Yep, indeed. And it, and this is w one last question for you. I, I want to come back again to the fact that um, the many things you point out, like gerrymandering, that uh, are design problems are the ones that you just spoke of in terms of the inflexibility of, of the U.S. Constitution. Um, th these are all serving the interests of, of the plutocrats and the oligarchs who, who benefit from a citizenry that is, is not voting and is not active and is, is perhaps not able because of gerrymandering or because of finance or campaign finance issues to really affect how the representatives represent them. Um, and, and so I, I want to return again to, to the tension between capitalism and democracy, because with, when John Maynard Keynes back in 1930, I believe, um, he had an, an essay wrote a uh, letter to my grandchildren, he thought that capitalism was a necessary evil. Uh, and he was spot on that a hundred years later, he envisioned um, the tremendous growth in wealth and development in technology that was very accurate, actually. I think his GDP estimate was almost spot on. Um, but what he thought would result as a consequence was that people would just uh, willingly cede power and let the citizenry, let the workers have, for example, a 10-hour work week and have the kind of leisure time that would come with that growth in wealth and wealth and that development in technology. But of course, like the 
problem with capitalism is it's also a hegemonic ideology that leads to uh, those who seek the profit motive to think that they are the altruistic, um, you know, elites. They're the meritocrats. And so instead, you have the increased productivity leading to increasing inequality and a structure system that has not given us the, the leisure time um, where we might be more informed citizens, actually, and, and do better to hold the politicians to account. So I guess I just want to ask um, any final thoughts that you might have on prioritizing how to get to the good state that you write so well about um, when the the grasp of power seems to be vested in in not letting people uh, have the kind of time and, and do the kind of agitating um, that would lead to that state. Yeah, well, I mean, on the question of capitalism itself, you know, unbridled capitalism, individualistic capitalism, we see how how very easy it is for wealth to accumulate in a small number of hands and for those hands to use that wealth to entrench their position and, and to disadvantage people who, who are just nowhere near being able to compete with them on that front. And in a way, the United States is a kind of model of that. Look at the Scandinavian countries, on the other hand. There, right. you get the idea that um, there are some things that the market uh, can do, uh, but there are, there are plenty of things that the collective uh, can and should do because individuals in the market can't do them. So that way of finding that kind of balance where, you know, in, in between, on the one hand, the, uh, um, the, the sort of market mechanisms that, that operate uh, over things like shoelaces and chewing gum and, and the rest of it. And on the other hand, the, the fact that a thoughtful community will say, look, there are some things that are, you know, intrinsically valuable and which are good for all of us. We all benefit if we do this, if we have a really good education system, for example, that's going to be a benefit to, to all of us. And this is something that only a collective can provide by pooling its resources and, and putting its energies towards that. Now, admittedly, this is so much easier to do in a in a small country. Right. I mean, the Scandinavian countries have populations less than 10 million. You know, so they, they're, they're, they're smaller than London or, or New York or something. But in, in a big country like, uh, like the US, a very populous country, the institutions and the responsibility that voters have to choose good people to populate those institutions and operate them, this becomes a much, much more demanding matter. Very, very hard for people who have, you know, rather sensible outlook on these things, like like you two guys, to to get uh, all your, you know, enough of your fellow citizens to sign up for that, even indeed to feel, because most people feel so disempowered that even if they did sign up for it, they're still not going to be able to have enough of an effect. So it is a major issue. I, I agree with it, but the response, of course, is not to stop trying. Uh, and I think the um, the, the idea that uh, what, what happened in 2016 with Trump being elected and the risk of him being re-elected now, that the, the idea that that you know, has just shown our powerlessness isn't quite correct because if there's one thing which is an augury of possible change coming up, more people getting aware of this, more people wanting to get involved, more, more people being sick with the way the system works at the moment, it's the number of books about democracy which have appeared in that period. Yeah, Wonderful. Well, do you have any anything to add? Any, anything else that we, we missed, we didn't get to talk about? No, that's about it. Thanks very much indeed. I, I really appreciated your questions. I thought it was great. Wonderful. Professor yeah. A.C. Grayling, thank you so much. Uh, the book is The Good State on the Principles of Democracy. Uh, it's been a pleasure. It was a, it was a great uh, read. I, I recommend it. It's especially accessible uh, for those who uh, would like to have 
a kind of um, access to lots of different thinkers from the U.S. founders to the to the ancient Greeks um, in, in a way that is, that is very contemporarily relevant and and accessible. So we really appreciate having you on and, and, and wish you great success in, in promoting good principles for, for the good state. Well, thank, thank you, both of you. Thanks very much. Yeah, and thanks for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you next time.